Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics, among other things. My book just out this September is Words on the Move, which I wrote to help people hear language in a whole new way. And this week, as you listen to this, you can have your own copy of my very latest, Talking Back, Talking Black, which is designed to make you hear black English in a whole new way. Some of you may remember that when I first started hosting this show last summer, I was doing interviews. Those were fun, but in the fall, I started doing solo shows, starting with the one about the backshift. You'll only know what that is if you've been listening in since then. But as of this new year, I want to start mixing it up because other people are more interesting than I am, such as today's guest, who is Mark Seidenberg. Mark is a professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and he's a senior scientist at Haskins Laboratories. But more to the point, he is the author of a wonderful new book, Language at the Speed of Sight, How We Read, Why So Many Can't, and What We Can Do About It. This is a book that I've been excited about since I was sent a galley several months ago, and I've been waiting to have Professor Seidenberg on Lexicon Valley when the book came out for real ever since, which it has. Truth is, reading isn't what linguists usually study. We're into speech, Writing to us is approximations of language on the page. And Professor Seidenberg's book will get that across beautifully, by the way. But then reading, well, frankly, that just doesn't come into it at all for most linguists. I do no lecture on it in my intro class, for example. I punt on questions about it for the most part. But I myself am mad as a hornet that my daughter, who just turned five, hasn't been taught to read. I decided there was no way that somebody so charmingly articulate wasn't capable of reading an elephant and piggy book. And so I got Siegfried Engelman's wonderful Teach Your Child to Read in a Hundred Easy Lessons. And now that we're done, my little lady who couldn't read a stop sign when the leaves were turning is now reading like a highly preliminary little champion. I'm going to kick this off with a recording of her doing this reading. Of course, the press just happened to be in my living room at the time. But this is me and my girl. And we're doing something which we couldn't have done back in the fall, which she learned to do from a very handy book that didn't really teach us anything very complicated. It just teaches you how to teach a small person to read. Here we are. Orange blossom leaps, raspberry tort leaps too. Now. I want you to read this like a big girl. Lemon. Excellent. Is mm-hmm. not good. Happy. Sound it out. 
So what do you think that says? Having fun. Excellent. Read the whole sentence. Lemon is not having fun. Okay. Plum. Excellent. Asks. Lovely. Lemon. Wonderful. What? Okay, keep going. She is sad. Now, do you ask somebody what they're sad? No. When? No. Why? Excellent. She is sad. And then? Lemon says she is not good. Excellent. At mm -hmm. ballet. Very good, Dolly. So, this book... Siegfried Engelman's Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons. It uses a tightly scripted phonics method, and it worked like gangbusters. But phonics apparently is controversial. Now, you might think that it wouldn't be, since really it's about teaching your child to sound out the words, because words are made of sounds. And that's in contrast to the whole word method, where children are taught to recognize whole words via an interesting, often rather indirect, but apparently at least sometimes effective system, because spelling is so difficult. And yet, phonics is thought of as a thing, you know, hooked on phonics, as if teaching children to read by sounding things out is somehow special as if you're venturing something to use that method hooked on phonics as opposed to these other methods. Mark, let me ask you something. When you're trying to make sense of a controversy, it really helps to try to put yourself into the head of the other side because the adversary is almost never crazy and is almost always very well-meaning. What is the evidence that the whole word method works better? You ask about evidence, but the problem is that there isn't good evidence that the method you're describing is better, but there's a belief that it's better. And what you describe doing with your child is anathema in education. No one's going to want to do a series of small step lessons to teach a child to read because they think that that will kill the child's interest in reading. My child is alive. Well, all right, that's not yes. evidence because I'm not a teacher. Go ahead. <laughs> The sense is, of course, the expressions drill and kill, but hmm. the idea is that if you focus on the mechanics, which is the way that print represents speech, mm -hmm. then you're missing the point, which is literacy, reading, enjoying, understanding text for its own sake. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis on the mechanics is just going to snuff out that motivation before the child even gets going. Snuff out the motivation. And so... When I hate to sound sarcastic, but when children are taught how to do it, they lose interest. And so there's this, you have to teach them to kind of learn indirectly. If you just clarify a little bit what people are thinking. People are thinking that the point of reading is understanding, enjoyment, learning, mm -hmm. the experience of reading itself. Mm -hmm. That the hard part is really getting the child relating to the material mm -hmm. and that if you place them in the right environment mm -hmm. where it is literacy rich and there are many activities focused on books, then they will pick up the mechanics along the way. And therefore, that relieves the teacher of the responsibility of having to do any of that kind of instruction. They will pick up the mechanics along the way. That is a very attractive idea. Is it, is it true? 
No. So there are very good studies about that, which suggests essentially a little bit of this goes a long way for most kids, but if you skip it, it's a very bad idea. The model here was basically learning to read is like learning a spoken language. When children learn their first language, they're not taught. They pick it up because they're motivated and because right. they're using it for communication. Exactly. And so Which is true. Right. reading was taken as the same kind of problem. Put the child in an environment where they're going to be using reading for purposes that are meaningful to them. Hmm. And just like spoken language, they'll pick it up. That was a bad analogy because the two are not the same. Hmm. Spoken language is something that evolved in the species. Reading is something that uh, has only been around for a few thousand years because someone invented writing. Uh-huh. And speech is the task that's uh, more natural and that everybody learns to talk in the absence of pathology. Mm-hmm. Reading is like, you know, indoor plumbing. Some people have it. Some people don't. And certainly um, learning to read is something that requires guidance and feedback and instruction in a way that learning to talk doesn't. Interesting. Now, that makes sense to me. I'm sure that anybody hearing this would think that this made a certain kind of sense. And you're speaking, as you emphasize in the book, as a reading scientist, as a psychologist who has studied how people learn to read, what the problems people have when they read are, etc. And you describe something, I had never thought of it quite in this way, but you describe a split between people who study reading in a test tube, so to speak, and people who teach other people how to teach reading. There's this education school scientist split. How did that happen? How did we get here from there? Schools of education occupy an unusual space on university campuses. And in the book, I go through some of the history, the schools of education being started in the early 20th century for the most part. And there's always been a question about whether people can teach other people to teach. Mm -hmm. And so schools of education were created to fill the need for teachers And on campuses like Harvard and others, there was real skepticism about whether this was a proper academic endeavor and whether there was really anything to teach. So there was resistance to the development of these schools of education. Well, Mm -hmm. one of the long-term consequences was they're just pretty isolated from the related disciplines like linguistics Mm. or developmental psychology or even now cognitive neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And so – They developed a very separate culture and kind of rationalized why the kind of science that I do and lots of people do is not really relevant to what a teacher has to do, what happens in a classroom. So they're isolated and there are barriers. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is because the split between education and science is so big and Mm -hmm. has been going on for so long that – just trying to get people into the room together to figure things out is not working. And I wanted to kind of give it a little bit more of a push to break down some of those barriers. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
I don't want to seem like I'm stirring up the pot, but I can't help oh, asking, you are. Is, <laughs> is the reason that this isn't working, is there hostility or is there just a lack of interest because all of us have our bailiwicks and we all have limited time? It's more than just a little academic turf war. There's a real ideology on the education side. And by that, I mean the part of education that's really related to early childhood instruction. Hmm. They have a very deeply entrenched view of the role of the teacher and the goals of education, and it doesn't have much to do with the kind of science we do, and in fact, kind of rationalizes why the science isn't relevant. So, yes, there is some real disinterest, active disinterest in trying to integrate what we know about reading from other sources. And moreover, they're not prepared to integrate it because they don't have the basic scientific literacy. It's not emphasized. It's not seen as really crucial to the training of teachers. Hmm. You are um, referring, I take it, based on your book and also my own experience in terms of different priorities, to a sense that many education schools, or am I allowed to say pretty much all of them teach, that One of the central goals of teaching small children is to inculcate social justice and that that has to be an integral part of how you teach kids and that that interferes with what somebody like you, the the pointy-headed scientist, might be trying to impart. Is that the sort of thing that you mean? Yes. Sorry to call you pointy-headed, but you know what I mean. Egg-headed is okay, too. (laughs) I think we need to change the way we're talking about this. So the idea that teachers are there to teach children to read is not part of the thinking. In fact, reading is sort of a term that now on the education side means just the mechanics, and you do as little of that kind of stuff as possible so that you can move on to literacy, which is the What's literacy if, if it's something different? Literacy, well, you would think it was the ability to read and write. Literacy is the uh, appreciation of text, the appreciation of story structure, the appreciation of the way that books work, how reading and text functions in your particular part of the culture. The educators have decided that Children aren't going to learn from directly being taught. They're going to pick things up. And so teachers are not taught methods for teaching reading, for example. If you're not teaching the teachers methods that are effective and ways to try to help the most kids succeed, what's left? What's left are the acculturation issues, the idea that education is an engine for social justice and social change, familiarizing prospective teachers with the cultural variability in this country, making sure that the way that you interact with the kid is relevant given their background and particular experiences. So we aren't actually teaching children to read. And a parent who goes to school, drops their kid off at school for kindergarten and thinks that they can leave it to the school to teach them to read is kind of making a mistake. And let me ask you, why didn't you drop your child off at school and let (laughs) them teach the child to read? (laughs) Did you lack the confidence that they would do it, or did you just kind of want to do a better job because you knew you could figure it out? Oh, God, they're going to listen to this, so I have to be very careful. My daughter has wonderful teachers, but they weren't going to do it because I asked It's not about the teachers. It's not about the wonderful teachers. No. It's about what the teachers have been prepared to do. Yeah, I want to—just in case they hear this, I want to say— 
it was what I mean is they weren't supposed to do it. I asked about it and they said, well, no, we're not allowed to teach them how to read until a later point. And we kind of talked about what the re- oh. reasons were. And then I said, well, is it going to be with whole word or phonics? And they said both. Now, they are great, great teachers in themselves, but I thought that's too late and I don't want her exposed to that bad method, at least from what people say. So then I decided, well, I'm going to start her at home. That's what happened to me. So, John, what your story is representative of many people's stories in an important way. You are an educated, middle-upper SES kind of person Mm -hmm. with a certain kind of uh, resources and are educated yourself, and you could pick up the slack. Exactly. But if the system is oriented towards the parent or some other caregiver covering the stuff that's no longer covered in school, who is that going to favor? Who is that going to help? And who's going to not benefit from it? It's that? an injustice. Everybody couldn't have done what I did. You know, my daughter which has two parents, for one thing. We could barely fit it in. You know, we're often tired at the end of the day. Yeah, we had a leg up on it, but that's certainly not something you can expect most people to do. So, yeah, it's very much an injustice. Why shouldn't a parent expect that their child is going to go to school and they will learn to read mm-hmm. by being taught by someone who has expertise, experience, and so on. I, I have to emphasize, it's not about the integrity or motivation of the teachers or their intelligence or any of that no, stuff. Don't. It's really just about they've been socialized into a set of beliefs about reading and literacy that are contradicted by a lot of research that's gone on for a long time in labs in this country and many others. As a scientist, like many scientists, it's just extremely frustrating to not be able to get in the classroom door. And I hear from teachers who are surprised to hear that there's this kind of research, Hmm. who are open and interested and want whatever tools they can find. Mm -hmm. And the question is, well, why weren't they taught that as part of their preparation for becoming a teacher? Just what your book made me stomp my foot about. I want to ask you something because this is something that always comes up. And I, I'm just guessing from my own subfield of linguistics, where when people have fights, most people are on the sidelines saying, well, couldn't it just be both? Isn't the answer in between? And you know, every, nobody wants to have an argument, but sometimes the answer isn't in between. And I think a lot of people have a lot of trouble with the fact that sometimes it's only one side that's right. Not that that is me within my own (laughs) subfield. But in this case, I'm sure two out of three listeners are thinking, well, shouldn't it really be both a mixture of phonics and whole word? Why do they all have to be so doctrinaire? What's your answer to that? Well, the phonics and whole language, which was the other approach that was at the base of the reading wars, That was kind of a proxy battle for a set of issues that Mm. separate scientists and educators. So it's not just about phonics. I mean, phonics is a step along the way. It's necessary for most kids. They might get it at home. They should get it someplace. And then you move on. Mm -hmm. But if the teacher hasn't been exposed to what the problem is in learning to read, what kinds of methods are effective, then just saying to them, use the best of both worlds – That's just a way to maintain the status quo. You're asking people to do things that they haven't been taught to do, and they don't understand why it's important. Here's the basic problem. The child is five or six years old. They already know how to talk. They know about speech. They're going to be able to read if they can figure out how this printed code represents speech. Mm -hmm. Most kids require 
at least some instruction to get that understanding off the ground. Many of them with a bit of instruction generalize from that very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Some need more extensive practice, but it doesn't have to be a long, elaborate process. It just has to be taken care of. And you know what? Writing systems all evolved to represent the sounds and meanings of words and languages. And Mark, of course, you have to now explain why whole word isn't the answer, even though roughly one out of every four highly used English word is spelled in a tricky way. First of all, whole word is is not really going to work because it makes reading, learning to read harder. It essentially treats every word as different and something the kid has to memorize. That's kind of rote learning. Mm-hmm. It's just treating the word as an association between a pattern on the page and a meaning. Mm -hmm. That's going to slow the child down. What you want them to learn is, oh, there's a structure here. This written code is systematic. If I learn something about cat, it's going to carry over to other words. The idea that children learn word by word by memorizing, that's a terrible idea. And there's various kinds of evidence that show that it slows things down. I loved your evidence that there are these families of words that are misspelled that actually have patterns that are part of patterned learning, just like learning how to sound things out, that it's not as chaotic as it looks from the outside. Yes, and that's true even for the words that give English its bad reputation. So the wonderful thing about English is, um, yeah, we have these words that are sort of irregular, like have and said and gone and so on. There's something, you know, unpredictable about their pronunciation, but they're not pronounced glorp. I mean, they're not (laughs) arbitrary. And what you learn about have, a classic sight word, carries over to other words. It's not that it doesn't have any overlap with other words. And in fact, there are these families that teachers who have learned this will emphasize. So it's less arbitrary than it looks. The weirdnesses that give English written English its bad name are clustered among the really short High-frequency words that kids get a lot of experience with, like the, we're making a big deal out of the simpler words in the language that the kid can get past relatively quickly. As you get to more complicated words, they're even more systematic. It's interesting. Even when I was reading with my daughter, I think listeners might remember that she starts by saying having fun and then says having fun. And so she's got a little family in there of haveness right there. Mark, I wanted to ask you a couple of other things. I learned so much from this book. Now I sound like somebody on NPR, but I really mean that I did love this book. Dyslexia. I learned that dyslexia can correlate to an extent with both anxiety and physical clumsiness, which is interesting given that one gene connected with language, the famous FOXP2, you're waiting for it to code for things like syntax and semantics, and actually it codes for things like the lungs and the basal ganglia. It seems to be about mechanics rather than the mental part. Is dyslexia misdiagnosed as a disease, as some people have said in a very interesting fashion? John, the state of the world is that we have dyslexia denialism. So in education, it is a controversial issue whether dyslexia exists. And indeed, you will see articles saying it doesn't exist. It's just something that the researchers have made up. Or there's a really interesting, strange line of argument which says dyslexia is something that educators made up to excuse reading failures. 
So there's a famous educator named Richard Allington who says, I've never met a child I can't teach to read. Dyslexia doesn't exist. It's just the excuse we give for our ineffective teaching. And for a scientist who's looking at the brain bases of dyslexia, who's looked at it behaviorally, we're now actually getting to the genes that influence brain development in ways that interfere with reading eventually. For someone to go around saying, I've never met a child I couldn't teach to read, and dyslexia is just something that was invented as an excuse, this is wrong. This is not true. And please... We should stop saying that. There's a question about what a teacher could be expected to do if a child has this kind of developmental impairment. They're certainly not prepared to deal with it right now. Mark, what should parents watch for? I've seen people go undiagnosed with dyslexia and grow into quietly frustrated adulthoods. What should a parent watch for? And what's the difference between just being a little slow at learning to read and possibly being dyslexic? Your book is good on this. The first thing we know is that it's much easier to correct if the child is younger. There are methods that are effective with many children. It's much harder to deal with when the child is older and has been living with it for a long time. Loss of motivation and other things will have kicked in. The problem is we cannot diagnose definitively in a five- or six-year-old child who is going to be dyslexic and who won't. That's tough. What we can do is... Find the children who are at risk for a problem and prophylactically give them additional instruction, intervention that is effective and will keep most of them off of that dyslexic path. So the idea is, look, we cannot read the tea leaves of the behavior of five-year-olds and definitively determine who's going to be dyslexic and who isn't. Moreover, it's going to depend on how they're taught. Hmm. So we'll cast a wide net. We'll find the kids who seem to be falling behind on things like, do you know your letter names? Can you associate a sound with a letter? Have you begun to start sounding out simple words? There are a number of very simple sorts of measures you can use to find the children who are at risk. The other thing is, of course, if there's some family history, that's a red flag. You find these children who are at risk, you put them into a program where they get extra help, where they get extra monitoring, and many of them will just go on to become fine readers and there's no problem. For others, there is a real condition there that's going to need longer-term, more intensive intervention. <laughs> Mark, it's funny. So much of what you have said here and what you wrote in this book kind of makes me understand experiences I had that were always kind of hairs out of place. I remember when I was in grad school, there was an education school grad student who, you know, nice guy, but he used to say to me that what he was studying and it was interesting. He sounded like he was born somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Strangely unplaceable way of speaking. But he would say, well, what I'm studying is literacy. And he would say literacy with this kind of raise of the eyebrow. And I would think, OK, so you're studying how people read. Why are you using that highfalutin word? And why are you implying that there's some difference between literacy and learning how to read when you're talking about kids? Now I know what he meant. He meant that kind of literacy. And I've also noticed when I've spoken to some people who are getting their degrees in education that most certainly there's a sense that you are supposed to be teaching social justice. And frankly, you can sense a, a bristle if there is any questioning that that is what education of small people is supposed to be about, which leads me to my last question for you. And I don't know if there's an answer. Is there anything that can be done to possibly bridge this divide between reading scientists and reading teachers? Or is this just a hopeless face-off? It can't be a hopeless standoff. 
that would be tragic. I don't think we can keep going with the same institutional structures. I mean, as long as we keep going back to schools of education for the answers, we're going back to people who have their own sort of very deeply held beliefs that are not going to be overturned by uh, someone like me coming along with a review of many years of studies saying that your assumptions about reading are wrong. Listen, the reason they focus on literacy is because there were decades of research piling up that contradicted their basic assumptions about teaching reading. And instead of changing their methods, they changed the topic. They said, we're not interested in teaching children to read. We are interested in literacy. And that suddenly made all that research moot. We have to break down some barriers. I think that means possibly new institutional structures and certainly on university campuses, putting education under the same umbrella as sciences like uh, psychology and communicative sciences and linguistics, so that there is forced contact, so that there is exposure to another set of ideas. Everybody in the ed school at Columbia University should be taking Linguistics 101 so that they understand how language <laughs> works. It's essential. It's not part of their training. It's not an assumption. It's not something that happens, but it could I really hope so. And I should say, parents of small children, please buy this book and try to read it from cover to cover, because not only will it teach you about reading and your child, but it's also a handy introduction to a lot of basic concepts of linguistics. It kind of sneaks that in through the back door, but you could learn a lot. Language fans, neuroscience fans, please read this book. Don't think that it's just something about teaching children to read in classrooms only. This is a language book, which is why I have been so happy to have Mark on this show. Mark, thank you so much. This is exactly what I wanted, and I want everybody who listens to this show to learn what I learned from Language at the Speed of Sight. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. And by the way, letters, I get letters. I regret to say that I have lost the name of the person who recommended to me that I should watch the television show Shit's Creek with a lot of the Second City alumni in it. But I wanted to let that person know if they're still listening that I did watch every episode and laughed like a hyena throughout all of them. It is now part of the bedrock of my entertainment viewing. Thank you very much for Shit's Creek. Whoever you are, you know who you are. In any case, tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. This show was edited by Mike Wolo. I am John McWhorter. Thank you so much for listening. And see you back here in two weeks. They be like, teacher, will you teach me how to read? You know why? Because that is what I need.